0: Yesterday we had a pretty cool thing happen because I'm kind of a nerd for watching other people play video games (laughs) that I don't have to buy then. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar actually streamed on Twitch.tv last night with a bunch of high-profile content creators. That's crazy. And they had almost half a million concurrent views between all of them together. I think Alexandra herself had like 430,000 people watching on yeah. the site, which was Nuts. unprecedented, not just for the views, I think it was in their top five ever, but for a congresswoman to do something like that, I thought was pretty amazing. Yeah. So I was just curious if you guys heard anything about that. Yeah. I actually tuned in for a bit to watch it. It was pretty hilarious.
1: It was good. I tuned in as well. Twitch is something that I'm starting to dive into a little bit with my show. I just started building my own PC today. Nice. I saw you post that. Yeah, so. That's always fun. Probably got about halfway through that waiting on the 3070 graphics card to drop. I'm going to try go. to snag one, but... State of the art. Yeah. I watched that last night. It was awesome. Hassan Piker was the guy who put it together, and he's yeah. my favorite streamer I, by far. I
0: watch a lot of Hassan Piker.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> I saw a report this morning that said there was 700,000 concurrent viewers between all of yeah. the people they had, at one point.
0: Hassan's pretty big on the platform now, and they had people like Pokimane. Yeah. Uh, Who's also really big. A lot of...
1: (laughs) Pokemon?
0: It sounds... Yeah. Steven isn't into the Twitch culture as much as I am. That's amazing. But all these high-profile streamers, yeah, their concurrent views all together. It was pretty nuts. To give a frame of reference, how big are streams normally?
2: The biggest followers, how many people are watching their streams?
0: On Twitch.tv, and it's getting bigger all the time, but I think your average big stream... Is usually between forty or fifty thousand people on a day-to-day basis. Like right. someone like XQC, who used to be an Overwatch streamer and now he does different stuff. But where Twitch kind of blew up was a few years ago when Drake, the musician, streamed with mm-hmm. Ninja. I think that's Weren't still when in Fortnite? Fortnite. Yeah, that was when Fortnite was big, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's what blew up Ninja and Twitch and live streaming that. in general mm-hmm. to the greater audience. You could say that opened the door for things like this to happen. That was that was I think still the record-setting number. I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was really high. But last night was just so special for a lot of reasons, to do an outreach like that. I think it was focused, it was centered around get out to vote sort Mm -hmm. of message. And so they, they talked about it a little bit during the live stream over the course of the three or so hours that they were doing it. But yeah, also to have that sort of engagement from a person in office because you see, I think during COVID we've had people like Joe Biden do streams, not necessarily just town halls, but he's done like outreaches through live streaming to try to connect with people. And there's always tech issues and from the older generation sometimes a difficulty to grasp the medium yeah some of the stuff Bernie Sanders has done is actually capitalized on it really well when he was still running but this mm-hmm. was really fluid from a technical standpoint and so I think like Jackson said Hassan Piker had a big hand in helping things just flow naturally so everything just worked right. and it was really cool to see so many people tuning in that's awesome as far as the internet community is concerned it's one for the history
1: books definitely so maybe given the success, we'll be seeing more of it. I Why so. not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And she has already in that amount of time amassed so many followers. It's probably between 500,000 and a million followers, That's insane. which blows most of the content creators <laughs> that have existed on that platform for years out of the water. Cool stuff is
2: happening. That is cool stuff. We have someone with us here today. Yeah. (laughs) Besides the normal you and me and anyone else we've ever had on. Someone I'm extremely excited to have. This is the dream come true, I think.
0: We're the big time now.
2: (laughs) we have jackson hinkle with us today
1: thank you for inviting me on thanks for being here yeah
2: honestly though when i first envisioned doing these kinds of episodes where we're talking about topics other than media you were one of the first names that popped into my mind cool just because of your background and how i guess you could say outspoken you are yeah you're also very knowledgeable much more than i am about a (laughs) lot of these issues and we've said this before but with us having the upcoming election and it being a very historic moment we felt it pertinent to discuss these things. So today we're doing our second ideology episode, and it's sort of a spiritual successor to the one we already did about capitalism. This one is called Political Ideology, and we wanted to break down a little bit of the political ideologies so that for anyone out there that's confused or just as lost as we sometimes are in what is happening in today's world, that you could listen to this and feel more educated and like you're being led to understand a little bit more. Let's talk about Jackson a little bit more, really quick, so you can get to know him. I came up with this bio. Should I read it? Sure. I feel like an idiot. <laughs> this right Jump now. in at any time yeah. to
0: correct Steven. Probably pretty accurate.
2: Well, I first met you at Pizza Port in San yeah. Clemente.
0: The start of any great
2: relationship. <laughs> I mean, that's like my favorite place to meet people. Yeah, but. I was there with my family and you just happened to sit next to us and you said you were running for city council at the time. And I was like, wait, what? Because you were maybe like 10 or 11 years younger than I am. Yeah. And so I was not only taken aback by that remark, but I was also sort of intimidated because I'm like, what am I doing with my life that someone 10 years younger than me is running for city council? And clearly you had a passion for change. And I think that's been self-evident since I stalked you on Instagram later that night and Followed you and have been following you ever since. So, I sort of see you as someone who's so passionate about positive change that you devote most of your energy toward that. And we all know that in our days, we only have so much energy to devote toward anything. And so, to expel that energy and devote your time trying to create change and stir conversation to get people talking and moving toward change for themselves is really an admirable thing. And I've told you that before, but I just wanted to reiterate Thank it for you. our audience. So your history, and you can jump in here and go, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> but in the past, you've been a huge advocate locally in San Clemente, particularly for environmental issues. You helped lead an initiative that led to the implementation of solar panels on school campuses, mm-hmm. multiple school campuses. You led a campaign that reduced local school districts so that plastic consumption is reduced by 9,000 pounds annually, right? Yep. Awesome stuff. <laughs> Damn. You also worked to hold Southern California Edison, the majority owner of the San nuclear generating station accountable in their efforts to bury 3.6 million pounds of nuclear waste just 108 feet away from the shoreline of San Onofre State Beach.
0: That sounds like in itself the synopsis of a new Amazon original film.
2: (laughs) You've served as a delegate at the National Summit on Nuclear Waste, where you worked to form an action plan to safely and ethically store Edison's radioactive waste off of the coastline. And you spoke at a United States congressional briefing on nuclear power plant safety. Yep. And then I was reading also that you briefed presidential candidates mm-hmm. on the same issue. right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So separate occasions when those two things happen. But it's obviously been like a long standing issue that I've been very concerned about having grown up in San Clemente and surfing at Sano my whole life. So I briefed Tulsi Gabbard when she was running for president of the united states on the issue and she's a congressperson from hawaii if you guys don't know and also briefed kamala harris's team a little bit before she announced but technically she was a presidential candidate also (laughs) um and then bernie sanders of course also that's awesome Yeah. I mean, I'm just excited that there are people in the halls of Congress who are seeking the highest office in the land that are actually interested in an issue as niche as nuclear waste storage, you know, because it's not a sexy issue. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I mean, it's a huge issue because the environment is the future. Mm-hmm. And that's something else that I was reading is that one of the reasons you got into politics or even the idea of being in a governmental role at all is because that's where you can see the most change or where you can yeah. make the most change.
1: Yeah, definitely. I still feel as though that's my opinion that if you are in an elected position, you're probably going to have at the end of the day, the most say on the future of America. You know, I, I think that goes without saying. And that's why I personally think it's so interesting to watch, regardless of party, we have this new era, this new wave of young legislators that are kind of coming up in the ranks, that are really taking the country by storm and using their positions and their influence to create the policies that they want, rather than the older generation that kind of just sits back and does whatever their donors tell them to do. So,
2: right? yeah. Yeah. Mainly old white people. Yep. Right? <laughs> And then more nationally, I've seen you've been a huge advocate for the Green New Deal. Yes. Something you're still passionate about today. Uh-huh. And is my memory foggy, or have you been like put in handcuffs or arrested at one point? I a, have. Or a couple times maybe?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've- <laughs> what
2: was that experience like?
1: So I was on Nancy Pelosi's Youth Advisory Council with 10 other young people from across the nation. And I was specifically on there to oversee and help guide conversations surrounding environmental issues. And when the Green New Deal resolution was initially proposed by AOC and Senator Ed Markey, that was something i was so passionate about and really wanted to see implemented so i was trying to encourage as many people on that youth council to write a letter of support to the speaker of the house to support the green new deal which of course she did not support and once we were kind of met with the brick wall there I decided to go protest with the sunrise movement in dc and we were sitting outside nancy pelosi's office and i think i was the only member of her youth advisory council that was also arrested while protesting (laughs) in front of her office, you know. So it was a very cold Washington, D.C. evening. I was freezing, but I think overall, you know, we sent a powerful message and it was well worth everyone who was there and putting their bodies on the line to try and fight for this. When was that? 2018? That was, yeah, 2018, December of 2018, maybe December, January And you're
0: only 20 now, right?
1: I just turned 21 in September. So you would
0: have been about 18 or 19 at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's so, crazy. Uh,
0: Jax is pretty young for the people that can't see him. Well,
2: he doesn't look young to me. He looks older than I am <laughs> because of everything he's done and been through. And today you run a, a popularly growing online streaming channel called The Dive with Jackson Hinkle. Yeah. Its description reads, it is a populist left perspective on news and political commentary. We, being The Dive, are the leftist independent media that CNN doesn't want you to hear. <laughs> Yeah. Do you consider yourself leaning more toward the left? I mean, Because yes. I remember we talked about presidential candidates, and you said you don't really have a horse in the race. So
1: yeah, and I think that's an interesting point. I see voting as a moralistic practice. I mm-hmm. don't necessarily see it as something where we should be looking at the lesser of two evils. So I will not be voting for either of the two mainstream candidates as it currently stands in the 2020 elections. And that's a very controversial hot take, but it really is because I do see it as a moralistic practice and the values that I have as a populist, leftist, a socialist, whatever you want to call me, do not align in any way with Joe Biden or Trump. So that's why I said I don't really have a horse in the race.
2: When Bernie was still running, you were advocating for Bernie.
1: Yeah. Which would
2: maybe you to more of a democratic socialist in a way or
1: yeah i think in a lot of ways i'm and it it sounds very scary but it's not if you actually pick apart the policies but i'm very much to the left even of someone like bernie mainly looking at like foreign policy right Mm -hmm. because in america democrats leftists republicans conservatives whatever all kind of have a consensus on foreign policy in my eyes and it's like just to screw over everyone else at Mm -hmm. the advent of america so that's kind of one of the biggest issues that I usually separate and define leftists on is people who are genuinely principled about not bombing innocent people Mm -hmm. across the globe. (laughs) You know, And Bernie is someone who, as good as he is, is not great on foreign policy. And there's kind of tying it back to even what we were talking about a minute ago with young leaders who are standing up and fighting for a different future. There's many paleo conservatives who kind of align themselves with people like Tucker Carlson, who are really anti-interventionists, who don't support any of the wars we're in, are Republican on domestic issues, but differentiate themselves from the typical Republicans in that way. So I'm excited about the future because the There's the potential for that overlap there between the left and the right. Do you have like an ultimate goal
2: of if you could get to a position in government like where you'd want to go or what you'd want to do?
1: Yeah, I always say that whatever happens, happens. If there's someone who's more qualified to fill a position than I am, then so be it. But until there's... People running with a somewhat similar ideology to the one I have, I think I'll keep pushing for my ideology at every level. That's awesome.
2: I'm often discouraged by the people that I see that are in charge of our country. Yeah. I think a lot of people are, and that's sort of why we wanted
1: to do this specific episode. Mm-hmm.
2: We need more people that have,
1: people that are more... Um, I usually like to phrase it as like, I think we need more people who represent everyday American interests. And it sounds like such a cliche, you know, to say that. But really what we have right now is just... American corporatism that is governing the country. And you don't have to like me to believe that. Mm -hmm. That's the truth on both sides of the political spectrum. If you look at the campaign contributions of all these people on the left and right who are elected right now from Senate down to city council races, they're pretty much all bought and paid for already by major corporations or developers. Mm
2: -hmm. And that was something about your campaign too, when you were running that you didn't take any money, Mm -hmm. you were the most clean or something.
1: Yeah. And city council, Council races usually you don't really have corporations buying out candidates and contributing ungodly right. amounts of money, yeah. unless you're in a major city, of course. But in like small cities, mid-sized cities, which is San Clemente, sixty-five thousand people, you get a lot of developers who start throwing you know ten thousand dollars here, five thousand dollars there, and it's in an effort to ensure that that candidate, if elected, does zoning laws in a certain way or approves certain projects and maybe stifle other projects interesting so that's kind of how it trickles down to city council races and it's really all the same just with different actors and players you know it's f- yeah.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you something about that as far as donors and PACs versus more grassroots campaigns go. And I love that. And I'm curious how you feel having had experience in that area. And especially when you ran, I think it was in 2018, just narrowly missing out on the, mm-hmm. the election. It was city council, right?
1: City council. Yeah.
0: But how viable do you think that is for a movement like that going up against the the corporate interest do you think it's something that I mean looking forward like Steven mentioned with the younger generation trying to hopefully distance themselves from that Mm -hmm. do you think it's something that could realistically happen or are we sort of doomed to this talking about late-stage
1: capitalism (laughs) yeah yeah no I think it's definitely possible and the only reason why I feel so confident in saying that is because it's already happening Mm -hmm. you know and you don't just have to look at people like AOC to recognize that it's happening and she is a great example She was going up against a Democratic incumbent. I think he was like the fourth ranking member of the Democratic Party in the House of Representatives. She was outraised 10 to 1. And she still destroyed him on Mm, election night. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, in uh, Los Angeles right now, there's a few candidates who are running for city council, Albert Corrado, Nintia Rahman, they're both completely clean campaigns, not taking any corporate packs or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think it's possible. I think where you have the challenge is in communities that don't really care about that. So like San Clemente, for example. <laughs> might not be the community that cared about that as much about having a clean election or a candidate that wasn't being financed by developers or anything. Yeah. So I think, yeah, but it differs city by city, community by community.
2: To finish my thought, what I was going to say, cause you said kind of toward American life, mm-hmm. I was going to say we need more people that are advocates for all of human life, all of humanity. Like you were saying, not yeah. bombing countries uh, yeah. overseas, because they're humans as well. And we need more people with that kind of globalizing approach approach where they realize that everyone has worth just being a human being. And it seems like some of the people that are in charge or that have power in our country don't value human life as much as a lot of yeah ideologies and people these days.
1: Yeah, I definitely think you're spot on there. And I think that was something that uh, Donald Trump really had the rhetoric going into the election in 2016. He had the rhetoric of someone that was like, I'm going to get us out of these wars, these endless for-profit wars. I remember that. And uh, it resonated with a lot of people. It Mm -hmm. resonated with me. And like, obviously I didn't think he was going to go through with it and he didn't. (laughs) Um... And he, in Big some cases, launched us even further down deep, dark rabbit holes like in Iran. But by and large, that sort of rhetoric resonates with people. Yeah. And just because Donald Trump is a conservative who lied, I definitely think that there are actual conservatives, paleo-conservatives who will stay true to their word. Dan Crenshaw is an example of someone who, he's a member of Congress, and he's actually a veteran and someone who kind of looks at it issue by issue, you know, intervention by intervention and tries to come to the best agreement or decision on each thing. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson, like I mentioned before, Fox News correspondent, I regularly give him praise because even though he says some absolutely terrible things, in my opinion, there's some things that he also says that are great. Surrounding foreign policy.
2: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. One thing my wife, Allie, and I, when we listen to your stuff or listen to you on Instagram or on YouTube or something, we often note that you try to be as bipartisan as possible and you give clout where clout's due and you give credit where credit's due instead of being strictly off to one side or even far left, like you kind of categorized yourself a minute ago. So, what's the motivation there for you in kind of trying to stay in the middle or at least give? People there do when you see it.
1: Yeah. Does that have to stay just? I think it's just about being principled, you know? And it's the same reason why I can look at this election and still sleep at night. And <laughs> when I know I'm not going to be voting for either candidate, mm-hmm. and I have hundreds of people saying, you're a terrible person for not voting for Joe Biden. On mm-hmm. the left, people are saying that. Mm-hmm. I'm quite content with my decision on the matter because i mainly care about the issues right if i cared about partisan politics more than i cared about the issues then i'd probably be voting for joe biden but like given the things that i know he's going to do when he's elected assuming he is elected yeah, yeah. it's not things that i can stand or tolerate and knowingly give up my vote for right so yeah i think giving credit where credit is due is very important especially when you are a commentator because that innately means that more people are going to trust your word because you're willing to call out the bullshit where you see it. Mm-hmm. And it's just about being principled. And I think we need more of that in this country right now. I think that would serve everyone's interest to have more principled commentators on the left and the right and everywhere in between. But unfortunately, there there isn't a lot of that because you make so many enemies,
2: you yeah, know. Yeah. Let's talk about ideologies, political ideologies. Specifically in the United States, we have two sort of big ones liberal and conservative. The liberal ideology is most often associated with the Democratic Party, and the conservative ideology is most often associated with the Republican Party. This is the major split that we see in the United States today. But the thing is that not every Democrat or Republican will have a stereotypical view on every issue. Some people on the Democratic side may have more conservative views, and some people on the Republican side may have more liberal views. This large gray scale area is the reason that we have so much confusion from person to person, even within the same political party, and maybe the reason that you might be confused as a person or on your political viewpoints. And it's also the reason that some of us may have a hard time siding with either of the candidate choices that we have.
0: So there's also authoritarianism and libertarianism. The Libertarian Party is all about social liberties, individual civil liberties above everything else, so they would prefer in their perfect world to have no government at all. Obviously that's not gonna play out on either left or right side of our conventional schema of government in America. America's always had a strong sense of government, whether it swings left or right. Most of the developed world operates with some level of authoritarianism. And so when people talk about a fascist state or a communist state, that usually indicates some level of authoritarianism. You have federal authority in some way. And so you can reach far left on an authoritarian state and that's going to give you a communist dictatorship like China, or you can reach to the far right of the authoritarian stance and that'll give you Nazi Germany or any other fascist state from history. So
2: specifically, there's a number of issues that are hot-button topics in America and the United States, and each viewpoint sort of takes a different side on each of those issues. If you side with the Republican Party, you might have liberal ideologies. If you side with the Democratic Party, you might have more conservative ideologies. And that's kind of what you were saying really about moralistic issues, and that I think it comes down to kind of where you land as a person rather than a party and being identified with that. That's the short little extent or breakdown on what it means to sort of have a political ideology here in America specifically. There are more major topics, and we'll touch on them throughout this podcast from this point on. And our idea was at this point to talk about the two major candidates that are running for president. We have the Republican side and the Democratic side. And the Republican side has Donald Trump. You may have heard of him. (laughs) And the... (laughs) This is funny to even just say a lot. And the Democratic side has Joe Biden. Joseph Biden. (laughs) And Jackson being someone like we were just talking about who sort of can speak to both sides. And also, you know, so much information because I think... You eat up the information that comes out every day. I don't have as much of a passion for that. So you could say if something is a true statement or not, or if someone actually said this or that, Yeah, which is amazing because a lot of people get confused on things that people said is you hear things from one side that say, oh, President Trump said this, or oh, Joe Biden said this, Mm -hmm. and it's a misquote or a misinterpretation, or they're spinning it to promote their own agenda. Yeah, And so one of the things that I really wanted to do is go over some of those things, because I think that you would know more than most. My first question would be, are you familiar with President Trump and his administration being against human trafficking? Yeah. Because a lot of people don't really talk about that. And I saw something posted where they announced that the Trump administration is going to start a government organization against human trafficking. Mm -hmm. They went to ask for the media to cover it and nobody had any questions and almost nobody even showed up to ask questions about it. Yeah. So why is Trump, even the good that he does, not really talked about?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, you can look at the human trafficking, you can look at his trade policy, which in no way, shape or form was a huge step, but it was a step in the right direction. You can look at even some of the things that he's done for the black community in America, which is very controversial to say, given he's like a white supremacist. (laughs) But there's been some substantive legislating on behalf of the Trump administration that has been in the right direction surrounding black issues. And the reason for that, the reason why there's so much silence from the media surrounding his achievements that have been nominally good uh, is because if you speak out in support of the Trump administration right now in the political climate as it stands, uh, you will be excommunicated. And that's not an exaggeration whatsoever. If you're an independent journalist, you will be pretty much, you know, blocked out of every single potential job opportunity if you are speaking out in favor of Trump if wow. you are working for a mainstream outlet they're just not going to let you do it wow. you know and it's noam chomsky who's like a philosopher that i follow a lot he talks about the fact that these sorts of things happen before a person even is hired at a media company right that kind of thought process as to like well would this potential candidate for this journalist job cover trump in a positive light or not that's sort of taken into account when someone's applying for a job wow i think that's a solid question and something that you know should be posed to the correspondents and journalists at all these major institutions um And not only that, but it goes even further than why are they silent? The question should be asked as to why they're criticizing Trump for some of the good things that he's done. So pursuing open talks with North Korea, for example, not just willy nilly going straight for the bombs, you know, with (laughs) with Kim Jong-un. I think that's a good thing. Right. I think we should have a discourse between nations before you launch a war. Right. That's something that Trump has actually done. But then you get. These pundits like Rachel Maddow and MSNBC who says that Trump is somehow complicit with the crimes, the atrocities of Kim Jong-un because they're doing a photo op together. I think there's a lot of just anti-Trump sentiment in the mainstream media that leads us in the wrong direction in a lot of ways, either from being silent or criticizing Trump when he's actually doing something good.
0: That can sometimes also move the focus away from things that should be criticized otherwise, too.
1: Yeah. Another example is when Trump was wanting to pull troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq, and he received a lot of criticism for that, not only from the mainstream media, but also from... Mainstream politicians like Liz Cheney and a number of Democrats that caucused with Liz Cheney, who is a Republican, the daughter of Dick Cheney, former vice president, to stop President Trump from removing troops from Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. Trump, in some ways, actually does go against the grain of the establishment. There's a well-concerted effort to stop anyone from seeing that on behalf of mainstream politicians and mainstream political pundits. I'm going to get to Biden, so don't worry,
2: listeners. But (laughs) when it comes to Trump, in your humble opinion as a commentator, are his good and his bad balanced? No. (laughs) Okay. So one outweighs the other.
1: Yes. In my opinion. Okay. You know, I think a lot of it, even the good things that he has done, for example, like we just talked about North Korea, Mm -hmm. pretty much all he did there was a photo op. Even though you had the mainstream media criticizing Trump for even talking to Kim Jong-un, he didn't really actually do anything. It was just kind of a photo op. And at the end of the day, nothing was accomplished. There was no peace deal between North Korea.
2: You also mentioned his trade policies. Yeah. Didn't he ruin a lot of our trade and what we were doing with China specifically?
1: depends what your view on good trade policy is. Personally, I think we should have more protectionist trade policies in the United States. Mm -hmm. And basically what it boils down to is you have protectionism, which is protecting US manufacturing, US-based production, things of that nature, taxing other countries, making it harder for other countries who have significantly lower labor standards or environmental standards to import their cheap goods into the United States. And then on the other end of the trade spectrum... You have pro-outsourcing trade policies, and these are usually trade agreements that are crafted by multinational corporations that serve to benefit them, that make it easier for these huge companies to transplant a job that may have been in Pennsylvania or Michigan to China or Mexico, yeah, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So what Trump did was he renegotiated NAFTA into what is now the USMCA trade deal, and basically it just made labor regulations and environmental regulations a little bit better in Mexico. By and large, it was pretty much the same policy, but there were a few tweaks that should be celebrated.
2: So he was actually, in his own way, sort of trying to boost the American economy by renegotiate the trade to foreign policy, other countries and stuff.
1: Yeah. And a brief caveat on that also is that one of the biggest ways in which he wanted to increase manufacturing and stimulate the economy in the United States was through a Made in America Act, which basically is what it sounds. It means that the United States, if at all possible, would look to source any item or product that they need from a company that's making it within the United States. He said he wanted to pass that policy, and he never did. So the United States right now has no incentive, like the government has no incentive to buy products and goods that are made in the United States over products or goods that may have been made in Mexico, China, Canada, wherever. Joe Biden, on the other hand, surprisingly, someone who is a very pro-outsourcing candidate, does want to implement that policy. So you could look at that as something of Joe Biden reading the room, you know, and seeing that the outsourcing trade policies aren't really working anymore. It's resulted in millions of jobs to have been outsourced. And now he's kind of changing his tune. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Do you have any more positives for Trump?
1: Yeah, I think those are definitely the biggest ones in my books. Uh, And mainly, again, it's his rhetoric on those issues because he really hasn't followed through with actual legislation on foreign policy that I think lives up to his campaign rhetoric or on trade for that matter or any of the number of other things we just discussed.
2: In rhetoric, you mean just their actual speech and how they
1: come across and how they talk and
2: the words they're actually speaking, right?
1: Yeah. So when I say rhetoric, when I discuss Trump's rhetoric or Biden's rhetoric, I usually am talking about what narratives they're espousing on the campaign trail. So if Trump is out there in a rally in North Carolina saying, we're going to bring all the troops home from Afghanistan, his rhetoric is anti-interventionist. You know, he wants to get the troops home. Now, has he actually lived up to that? Not even close. But that's his rhetoric.
0: Gotcha. I will say, actually, that Trump is extremely good at styling and curating rhetoric, maybe, towards his base. Mm -hmm. And extremely good at telling people what they want to hear and using their own human nature in a way that he can... I don't want to maybe manipulate. Sounds a little harsh, but I think that's sort of what it is. He's very good at... Playing to his base. So that's all I have to say about positives. But he knows how to cultivate ratings, whether it's just a culture of outrage or whatnot. He likes and he's very good at energizing his base. So let's talk about some negatives about Trump.
2: How does he get away with saying one thing one day and then the very next day claim that he didn't say that thing and get away with that?
1: I've been wondering that for the past, you know, (laughs) four plus years that he's been in public life. And I think it boils down to the fact that he is his own PR team. So typically with a PR team, if you have some sort of a scandal, you do everything in your ability and your power to divert attention away from that scandal Trump is like a ticking time bomb of scandals so as soon as you're concerned about one scandal three hours later there's a given that you're gonna be concerned about something else or that's going to be the talk of the nation some other scandal he's really good at that and it plays to his advantage because as you just brought up let's talk about some of the negatives of Trump I can't even pin one to the to the wall you know it's like I can't even think about one scandal because there have been so many right, or so right. many negatives in my opinion so yeah I, I think that's a talent of his, to be honest, is the fact that he can divert attention away from bad things.
2: To me, it's just lying. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just called lying.
0: Yeah. I think it might even speak more to the American people than Trump himself in, in terms of a cult of personality. And he seems to be just the person who has found the right place at the right time to be able to capitalize on that. So he can, it's like you said, say one thing one day and turn the next and say, I never said that. Or just, like Jackson said, divert attention towards this new thing that's happening. He's able to rewrite history in
1: that way. (laughs) You can look at his base or look at the American public and say that, you know, maybe certain people care less about certain scandals or certain lies that he may have told. But I think as a whole, everyone across the nation has been desensitized to a certain extent throughout Mm. this presidency. You know, there's just been so much stuff that has happened that at the end of these four years, you look at something that on day one of the Trump presidency, when he was inaugurated on January 21st or whatever, of 2016, that may have been a scandal back then. Now, that scandal, it's another day in the office. Yeah. It's another (laughs) Tuesday. So I think you also have to look at that. The fact that we've all been desensitized to a certain extent.
2: When I think of the negative about Trump, I think about this whole wall issue and the fact that there have been multiple accounts of people talking about the families that are torn apart and put into horrible living conditions, similar to like prison camps and stuff.
1: The wall is a very interesting political discussion because Democrats at various points throughout the last decade, two decades, have actually been in support of some variation of either a wall in certain parts of the border or increasing border security. Trump has made it, obviously, his campaign talking point, a border wall that Mexico would pay for, but never actually is going to directly pay for, obviously. But now he's saying is paying for through tariffs and things of that nature. It's really a political statement. I think a lot of People get fired up one way or another over the border wall. There's not a lot of construction that has been had on the border wall thus far. And we are now at the end of the first term of President Trump. It's a metaphorical wall. Yeah. Now, that has been in some part due to protesters, indigenous protesters, like the Kumeyaay defense against the wall. It's a group of indigenous protesters in San Diego or San Diego area they're on Kume land and then there's also a group in texas and then the one further east that are actually actively stopping further construction of the wall by staging a sit-in which i find to be interesting on the other end you also have the actual real world impacts of trump's immigration policy that have been playing out in the stories of family separation at the border which is devastating i think everyone can agree on that but it should be noted that that the Obama administration also had a very infamous policy, especially amongst immigration activist groups, of caging children at the border. They didn't separate families, but they would also cage children at the border. One of the first viral photos that was circulating during the stories that went out about Trump separating families at the border and caging children was actually a photo from the Obama administration of a child that was caged under Obama's immigration policy. So I think Trump gets a lot of heat, rightfully so. I I don't think he should have continued and expanded upon immigration policy, but Obama started it. He did it for somewhere between you know one and eight years. I don't know when they started it. That's something that a lot of people don't talk about, but I think should be discussed because if we actually want to end that terrible policy we have to be willing to hold democrats and republicans to account to stopping it
2: that's just so sad to me it just breaks my heart every time i think about it
1: my brother
0: is a marine and the marines were called might have been last year to help enforce the border patrol wall and he was like yeah a lot of messed up stuff going on in those containment centers yeah so many people packed into small spaces and stuff yeah like the horror stories you hear but you're like ah you know it's just another story, but it's,
1: it's actually happening. So, And now you have stories coming out in Texas, for example, doctors in these immigration containment facilities, whatever they call them, doing mass vasectomies. Yeah,
2: what is that? Vasectomies. Yeah, hysterectomies.
1: Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, hysterectomies. Yes, that's true. I only heard about it happening at one of these places. It's not like a widespread policy on behalf of the doctors.
2: Against the will
1: of the people that were being contained. Yeah, it was not consensual. Or they didn't even know what was happening.
0: It's so intense.
1: That almost sounds like an instance of a really messed up doctor, though, yeah, yeah. who just hates these people beyond belief. So let's talk about racism.
0: Okay. <laughs> get, get ready. Yeah. Here we go.
2: <laughs> Trump, would you say that he has racist tendencies? 100%. But I mean, Biden does as well.
1: Well, Biden's got a pretty storied history with things like the crime bill. Again, that's one of those things that I think we have a better shot of actually addressing as a country Mm -hmm. if we talk about it. Mm -hmm. You see some Democrats that are like, yeah, Trump's a racist, but don't even think about talking about Biden as being a racist because he's (laughs) definitely not. We literally have 40 years to prove that this man is a racist. And not only is he racist in his talking, in his rhetoric, using that word again, but in his legislating. He wrote the 1994 Crime Bill, which disproportionately cracked down on people of color, black people. I'm wincing
2: if you guys can't tell.
1: There's a litany of things that Joe Biden has done, as has Donald Trump, over their careers that have Been categorically racist. Mm -hmm. To be fair, at this point, it's possible
0: that Joe Biden's dementia has eaten away the racist part of his (laughs) person. It's possible.
1: (laughs) Because he seems cool now, but you never really know what is genuine. Well, he was on, was it Deuce and Marrow or something? He was on some podcast a couple months ago after he had already won the nomination of the Democratic Party. Is this the one? Yeah, he says, at the end of the podcast, he said, if you're not voting for Biden, you ain't black. Or something like that. If you're not
0: black, if you're not voting for me.
1: Yeah. And it's like, okay, didn't know that all black people were a monolith. It was a slip of the tongue. In some ways, you know, his cognitive decline has almost exposed his brutal honesty and racism even further. You can also look at, like, his other campaign stops when he would tell very questionable stories about, you know... (laughs) Children
0: Uh, rubbing his hairy legs.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) And like a group of very aggressive young black men who he had to fight off. It's just insane that these are the two people that we have to decide between for the highest office in the land.
2: To quote my brother a little bit from our last
1: podcast. It has to do with white supremacy and just that history that we have in our country. Definitely. Even after, what are we going on, like seven months of complete and total social unrest following the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent murders of Breonna Taylor, Elijah McCain, like countless other people of color and black people have been murdered by the police in this country. You still really don't see the needle moving on the Overton window nationally on what is acceptable political debate and talk and ideas from these two candidates. It's still as if they're Campaigning, and it's like the mid 90s or like the mid 80s, and it's the same exact talking points, the same exact ideas. And it's almost like nothing can crack through that really, really hard shell, racist shell that protects both of them.
0: Yeah, it's so systemic and intrinsic that it's hard to really approach. It's such an underlying thing that it comes out so subtly in ways that most people wouldn't even readily acknowledge this racism. Right.
1: And I think that's why a lot of people were so galvanized behind ideas of Medicare for all and college for all. Mm -hmm. And in certain cases, universal basic income. It's not something that I'm a huge fan of, but I can understand the appeal Mm -hmm. because you're actually, by implementing those policies, addressing a lot of these systemic longstanding inequalities amongst racial lines, class lines, gender lines, sexual orientation lines that we see within our society in a very, very comprehensive way. It's very clear to see like the racial disparities, even amongst access to quality education or quality health care. And by implementing a catch all policy to address those things, that's a more much more substantive way of actually being anti-racist than going out on the campaign trail and saying that we stand against racism, you know, which is kind of what we're seeing from the Biden campaign. It's a lot of talk, but not a lot of action.
0: It's funny because you hear a lot of that from the Democratic side. And then you have in last year to push for things like Medicare for all and similar policies, and they're just kind of <laughs> squashed by the establishment, <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah,
1: ah, get, get behind." That's an interesting point to bring up—the fact that they are squashed by the establishment—and to tie that back into the overarching discussion of this podcast, ideology. Ideology is something that usually blocks a lot of forward momentum, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you hear a Democrat saying that or a liberal or whatever you want to call them saying Mm -hmm. that they oppose Medicare for all, then suddenly you think that Medicare for all is a bad thing without even looking at the policy. That's why I think labels, political labels are very dangerous. I think if you can make the time and the investment to understand exactly what they mean, then go for it. That's awesome. But at the end of the day, I think the things that matter most are like the actual policies that you stand for. You can look at the Green New Deal. When that was first introduced, before it went through the washing machine and dryer of the mainstream media and everyone giving their opinion on that resolution, it had an 82% approval rating when pulled nationally by Emerson between Republicans, Democrats, and independents. As soon as it went through the spin cycle of everyone giving their opinion on it, Fox News gave their opinion, MSNBC gave their opinion, CNN gave their opinion, suddenly it has virtually no support. That's the establishment, as you pointed out. When you look at actual policies, that one in particular, you say, oh, massive investment in infrastructure, technology, in energy, in agriculture. You're like, that's a good thing. And that's why I think it's important to understand ideology. But ideology can definitely be weaponized in very cynical ways.
0: To manipulate the masses. You could take any of these issues, really, and ask... I would think about my own family members, for instance, (laughs) like, what do you think about X issue or this proposition or something? And they'll just give you the mainstream media talking point where they're like, I don't like it. But then you talk about it for a minute and you describe what it is. And you can see the thing unraveling (laughs) behind
1: their eyes and all of a sudden, oh, This is different now. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously certain tendencies that you see within ideology and party. Like, obviously, less Republicans are going to support a Medicare for all or Green New Deal than Democrats. But even Medicare for all, example, like ensuring that every American has access to high quality health insurance, something that almost every other developed nation has last year. There was a poll done, national poll, 70% approval rating amongst all parties. This year, same poll was done by the same pollster, 69% approval rating, and 48% of Republicans support it. So that's why I, again, think that ideology can be a very dangerous thing, because it gets us in these little boxes. If you actually talk about the issues, most people support those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Right. That's so true. Let's just say,
2: when it comes to the bad about Trump, just to cap that one off, it's insurmountable.
1: Yeah, I'd have to agree there.
2: Not even our political commentator can even think of <laughs> one specific thing. So let's talk about Biden. All I keep hearing about Biden is he's not necessarily that great, but he's better than Trump.
0: Well, his original platform was uh, was Obama's guy. <laughs> yes. It's a return to normalcy, so to speak, for the democratic establishment or America.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a terrible... Mm-hmm. That was the platform, platform That's the, to speak on. That it. was the talking point. He definitely is the lesser of two evils. You can have disagreements about that. It's totally fair to hear out those disagreements because on certain issues, he definitely is worse. That's a very controversial statement on the left to say, but he is. There's no denying that. But at the end of the day, if you're settling between the lesser of two evils, as I always say, you're still settling for evil. And that's up to each individual, whether they want to give up their vote for that. For some people, that's a reasonable approach to take in this election, considering on one end we have a neoconservative catastrophe, and on the other end we have like a a still big but smaller neoliberal disaster some people want to take that move to vote for biden and i think plenty of people are if you look at the polls right now He has a 9.3 point lead nationally, I believe. He's been surging across the board. And specifically in those key swing states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, even North Carolina, Arizona, all the states that he needs to win Florida if he wants to end up in a different place than Hillary Clinton did. So, yeah, one of the biggest... Issues that I think you could make the lesser of two evils argument is on climate change. And for people who understand the science of climate change, I think that's going to be an issue that resonates with a lot of people, especially younger voters. He has a very large climate plan. It's nowhere near the level of former candidate Bernie Sanders or Jay Inslee, who was the governor of Washington, if I'm not mistaken, who ran on a very pro climate plan. Joe Biden still wants to allow for fracking, which is a form of hydraulic fracturing that produces an immense amount of fossil fuels, methane specifically. But he will be moving towards a more renewable market. He will be focusing on investing in smaller community-based permaculture agriculture, which is a step in the right direction. But at the end of the day, a lot of this climate policy that we've seen Take the most aggressive action has been at the state level, actually, from California. And then the rest of the nation has kind of followed in Sue. So if you're looking for a leader on climate change, look no further than the state of California. Joe Biden's not gonna go further left than Gavin Newsom. Another issue is healthcare. Joe Biden's plan is going to maintain the Affordable Care Act. He is not even going as far as Hillary Clinton went. Hillary Clinton's healthcare plan was to cover 10,000 more people than Joe Biden's plan actually covers. So he's taking a step back there. But the most popular position on healthcare is Medicare for all nationally amongst the voting base. So it's a bummer that he's caving to his donors' interests over the interests of the American people. But again, that's a lesser of two evil argument considering Trump wants to effectively eliminate the ACA, at least eliminate protections for people with pre-existing conditions beyond that you could look at immigration you could look at the iran deal which is something that we had from the obama administration joe biden wants to get back into the iran deal something that trump pulled us out of and launched us closer to a potential world war III by doing so but beyond that trump and biden are, are similar in a lot of ways and i think far more similar in ways that most people on the left wouldn't like to admit tax policy Joe Biden does want to increase marginal tax rates above people who are making $400,000 annually. He has said that he's hesitant to remove Trump's tax plan immediately. He wants to stall on that. I'd assume stall as we recover from COVID. As foreign policy goes, they're pretty identical, with the exception of the Iran deal. When you look at immigration, there's obviously differences. When you look at basically every other issue. I I don't see like a whole lot of differences.
2: So let's talk a little bit more in what ideology could mean for being liberal and conservative, mainly in the extreme.
1: As we move further into this Very, very odd political climate where there's an increasing amount of division between the left and the right. And I think that's being exacerbated by figures like Joe Biden and by figures like Donald Trump, who, again, really don't represent the interests of the everyday American, but are kind of just in their positions to sow division, I think, in a lot of ways, even though Joe Biden says he wants to unite the country, as we see that division continue to expand, And those types of figures who are exacerbating it continue to be lifted into these positions of power. You're going to continue to see very far right wing and far left organizations and figures become more prominent because people are kind of being pushed out of this weird center of America and being pushed to further extremes. There's always the joke of like, who knows what's going to happen after Election Day? There might be a civil war. I don't think we're going to get to that level anytime soon, especially considering most of Antifa's supporters are like random furries who just go out (laughs) to protest yeah there's
0: there's not a lot of organizational structure to what antifa is on the flip side though you might have some proud boys take up arms if trump is dethroned
1: the most organized radical faction of political people in this country are definitely like the paramilitary groups and like the larpers on the right who are you know (laughs) that's a good word for it it's accurate it's like the figure kyle rittenhouse If you guys remember that, he went to the protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and he was quite literally a Blue Lives Matter anarcho-capitalist, which is another deviation (laughs) of like a right wing (laughs) political ideology, went there with his militia and shot three people. So as we move further into this realm of politics that doesn't represent the average American, I think we're going to continue to see more radicalized figures gain power and move even to further extremes.
0: Do you think it will be similar regardless of the outcome of the election? Or do you think that, for instance, if Biden's elected, if there will be any movement back towards some sense of harmony or something like that?
1: No. Honestly, I think we're pretty screwed either way. One of the things that Biden loves to tout is that he has a bunch of Republicans who support him. Mm -hmm. But the Republicans who support him are few and far between. They call them never Trumper Republicans. People who say, "I I would never support Donald Trump, but I am a Republican. That group of people is so small. I mean, all you have to do is look at Trump's approval ratings within his own party. You see, they're always well within like the high 90 percents, which is unheard of, unheard of amongst a sitting president at the end of his term. Really, the support that Biden gets from Republicans are like, random political figures of the establishment from like the bush administration it's not your everyday republican that was a trump supporter in 2016 mm-hmm. that is somehow now miraculously crossed over to supporting <laughs> joe biden who's like a carbon copy of hillary clinton it just doesn't make sense
2: right. okay let's talk about the pandemic the thing that's basically affected everyone over the last year which in my opinion sort of has spurred particularly our generation and anyone that has the potential to vote or be a voter into actually learning a little bit about our country because they're being affected just like everyone else and usually people don't really care until they're affected right what I've heard and you can again correct me if I'm wrong that Trump wants to try to reopen everything. And he's kind of an advocate for that. And Biden wants to shut everything down again. I don't even know if that's true, but I'm curious if we you know.
1: I think if we had had more aggressive action across the board during the first wave of the pandemic, we'd be in a much better position right now. Nationally, in the United States, we have a far higher infection rate and far more deaths per capita than any other developed nation By and large, like when you look at like Europe or when you look at Australia or Canada, most of the nations, with the exception of a few, have lower infection rates and even lower death rates than the United States. That being said, we never really exited the first wave of the pandemic. It did trickle off a little bit. Lulled a little bit. Yeah, it lulled. But compared to most other nations where they were seeing no new cases, no new infections or no new deaths over extended periods of time we never really had that in the united states like we we're still having hundreds of people die every single day that all being said whether you call this next thing we're about to launch into a second wave or a dramatic extension of the first wave <laughs> of this pandemic you have some scientists who are saying some leading scientists and public health officials who are saying that this next wave is going to be less lethal and who are already seeing that in europe And you have other leading public health officials who are saying that it's going to be one of the darkest moments in global history. So it's kind of hard to have an opinion on something like that when you have conflicting views from the supposed experts. What I will say is that Europe is already moving very aggressively with lockdowns. Whether or not we're going to see that in the United States, I think, is already a given. Like, I think we are definitely going to see that, which is unfortunate. And I think it's going to be very bad as far as the infection rate goes. The death rate might be not as bad as what we saw during the first wave of the pandemic. Hopefully, very soon, we're going to be getting a vaccine. Now, whether or not that vaccine is taken by enough people to create herd immunity is another discussion. Trump has said that he wants to put out the vaccine before it it finishes phase three of the trial period, which is something that I would, as someone who understands basic science and trials for vaccines and drugs, like that's something that you should not do. Is that why Kamala said I won't take Trump's vaccine? So she did say that during the debate. And I didn't like the way she said it because it sounded so political. She's like, if Trump says to take it, then right. I won't take it. Right. And it's like, I get what you're saying, but you made it just sound so partisan. You yeah, know?
2: because of Trump. Yeah. Yeah, instead yeah. Of, yeah.
1: For example, like if Trump completed phase three of the trial and said, like, take it, I think that would be a reasonable thing to do. If he doesn't allow phase three to complete, then I probably wouldn't take it. I'd wait till phase three does complete and the public health experts say to take the vaccine.
2: Trump, he's an advocate for stimulating the economy and reopening as fast as possible, which is why he wants to expedite the vaccine even before it's done, right? Correct. And then Biden wants to close down. Is that true? Here, Kamala has said that they want to close down for like at least six weeks or something like that again.
1: My understanding is that they want the science to guide the potential lockdown. If infection rates reach a certain point, then they would move forward with either a partial or a whole lockdown. Mm. Personally, like I think that's the best thing you can do because the approach of herd immunity and not locking down at all didn't work so well. I think it was Sweden or Denmark that tried it. And from what I heard, it did not work as anticipated. And there were many regrets on behalf of the public health experts in that nation that were trying to do that and thought it would be an appropriate approach to dealing with the novel virus outbreak. But if miraculously somehow this vaccine came out and like we did reach enough vaccinations to where we had herd immunity, I don't think that Kamala Harris or Joe Biden would willy nilly shut down the country. At a rally a couple days ago Trump was out there and he was like, Joe Biden will listen to the scientists (sighs) trying to mock him for listening to the scientists. And he's like, if I listened to the scientists, we'd be in a depression right now. And I was like, well, we kind of are headed towards that. You know, like we're not technically in one right now, but we're very close to that. And the fallout of this pandemic over the next several years is going to be felt far more harsher than we're currently even feeling right now, I think. You can kind of see where we're heading. You can see the ways in which support has been prioritized for major corporations over small companies and startups and the American people. Major corporations received like billions, billions, trillions of dollars in bailouts, whereas small businesses and your everyday individual received virtually nothing.
0: Mm. Crazy. Oh, God.
1: Does that assuage your fears, Stephen? No. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, here in the state of California, we have Newsom who has, and just in my humble opinion, which probably means nothing, has overcompensated in lockdown measures. Do you do you personally agree with that overcompensation? The flip side of that is the devil's advocate side is that he's doing it for the least among us, which are the people that are most at risk.
1: I think as a preface, any conversation about like whether someone aired too much on one side or the other, it's like we should all recognize that these people are just everyday people who are trying to make decisions on the fly, off the cuff, you know, and they're just trying to do the best thing for everyone. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Gavin Newsom, who is the governor of like the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world, California, doesn't want to run it into the ground. Mm -hmm. But there is criticism to be had there in hindsight of what he did. I think you can look at the beaches, for example. Many people saw beaches as a potential vector point or vector center for the spread of the virus. And I think, there is some truth some merit to that claim but where there is not truth to that claim in my opinion is when you're out surfing when you're out trying to just find some peace and quiet in the middle of a pandemic and exercise and you're by nature distance away from people because you don't want to hit them with your surfboard I never really saw the reason to to you know ban everyone from going out surfing and uh, that was something that was decided upon by Gavin Newsom and then even when the beaches were going to be open just for surfers and not for beach goers, not for people who are just sitting on the beach or, you know, hanging out, they didn't really enforce that. They were like, OK, we're just going to open it up for everyone, even though we're saying we're going to enforce tickets for people who are like sitting on the beach. And hey, they put
2: up signs that said no umbrellas, no one should just come and sit here. And you would look down at the beach and it would be chock full of people, not even six feet apart with umbrellas yeah. and just sitting in yeah. sunbathing and stuff
1: yeah. So you have to question, obviously, like the implementation side of things is a bit different. You run into problems with local sheriff's department, with municipalities who don't want to carry out certain policies that have been put forward by the governor. And during the middle of a pandemic, that's kind of the least of the governor's concerns, I'd imagine. I'd say during the first wave of the pandemic, I would imagine his biggest concerns were securing PPE for people in the state. And he did do a great job of that. That's something that can be applauded that He did very well using the purchasing power of California as a nation state to secure as much PPE as he did and bypassing the federal government in doing so. It was incredible. But the beaches, the surfing, that's definitely a criticism that I have as a surfer. You were just talking about dentistry versus barbers and stuff. Yeah, barbershops, for example. That's another one. You have barbershops that are not allowed to be open. And I still think to this day, they're not technically supposed to be open. But if you've gotten your haircut recently like I have, you know that they are open.
0: You guys don't cut your own hair?
1: No. <laughs> I'm not that talented. Oh, right, yeah. right, 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 right. But then you have things that I would see as potentially far more likelihood of spreading the virus, going to a dentist's office or something, or a bar, and there are many bars that are open across the state. I don't know what the regulations are. I know Hennessy's and... I think it's Dana per Point is open. Yeah. Okay. Even leaving that up to a city right. where on the other hand, you have all barbershops that are closed. It just seems crazy to me. Yeah, you know, it's a I mean, of all things, you, you don't need to take off your mask. If you're going to a barbershop or a salon, you can easily get your hair cut right. while maintaining that there's. Inherent contradiction there and whether or not you're choosing to try to limit the spread through shutting certain things down that are potentially more dangerous. There's potentially the danger of shutting down certain things that should be open and keeping certain things open that are potentially more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's other examples that I'm not aware of. But I go to a barber shop, I go to the beach, those are the two that come to mind.
2: Are you in favor like Trump of reopening the economy in this time, or do you think that's a bad move?
1: I think right now, if you were to reopen the economy. That would be the worst move. Just Just because, because, you know, we are whether we like to admit it or not, we are about to head into this second wave. Regardless of whether the death rates are going to be high or not, because we have developed some drugs that have been able to minimize the deaths of COVID patients, Mm -hmm. the infection rates are still going to be very high. And with a COVID infection, as everyone knows by now, you can have varying degrees of that infection based on how much of the virus you are exposed to. And if you are on the end of having been exposed to a lot of the virus, you could potentially have long-standing health issues, you know, that mm-hmm. stay with you long after your infection goes away. Mm-hmm. So what's happening right now is exactly what happened during the first wave. There were major, major outbreaks across Europe, specifically in Northern Europe, which is what we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. And as time goes on, as we hit flu season, we are going to see likely, I mean, who knows, right? But we're probably going to see an incredible outbreak in the United States.
2: Apparently, this flu season is supposed to be one of the worst. I'm on top of the pandemic. It's supposed to be Great. one of the worst that we've had in the last ten years. There's supposed to be four different strains. Wow, going around.
1: <laughs> I saw yesterday there was a Russian fitness influencer. He has like 1.1 million followers. I saw you post that. Yeah. 33 years old, looked like the fittest guy in the world. He passed away from COVID. Yeah. Again, that's Russia. That's in Europe. That's where this outbreak is currently taking place. So this narrative, this notion that it's only old people or very, very young people were dying from this is obviously somewhat true, but it's not a given. Yeah, totally. One of the most timely things that's happening right now, running up into the election, is
0: the Supreme Court justice stuff with Amy Coney Barrett is the appointee, right? And I was curious if you could give us any insight on that, if you have any thoughts. Obviously it is an unprecedented thing, being the timing going into the election and she's just an interesting character for different reasons I was just curious if you had any thoughts on what's going on there
1: I mean I don't have a lot to say about her personally but I I have a lot to say about the appointment process as a whole but what I will say about her personally is that she is an ideologue like we talked about with Pence earlier seems to be a lot of that on (laughs) they run in herds they do move in herds (laughs) She's very much a evangelical Christian fundamentalist from what I understand. And she's also a very well-accomplished legal scholar and a person who has proven herself throughout her career as being a talented individual at what she does. And I think you can have both of those things ring true. What I will say about the appointment process, which I think is the interesting thing here, is that now for, I don't even know how many times we've had a president who didn't win the popular vote They're always Republicans. It's crazy how that works. A president who didn't win the popular vote that is appointing another Supreme Court justice that's going to have a lifelong term on that Supreme Court. I think the craziest part about this all is that there were multiple attempts that could have been made by the Democrats, by Nancy Pelosi, even by Chuck Schumer, who's the Senate minority leader, to stall and potentially block Trump from getting this appointment passed. They made no effort whatsoever. They could have done things like asking for unanimous consent on every single item that was brought before the Senate, which would have delayed proceedings immensely over the next several weeks, potentially until Trump is out of office. If that happens, that's one way they could have stalled to try and prevent what's her name AB, ACB? Amy, Yeah, is that a- what they're calling her ACB <laughs> ACB from, from being nominated and appointed they could have obviously this has huge political ramifications if they would have moved forward with this but they could have again impeached Trump on any of the number of things that they left out of the first impeachment articles I think <laughs> uh, most notably the emoluments clause and Trump's violation of it that was a big one yeah the reason why they left it out is because a lot of Democrats are complicit of violating the emoluments clause which if you don't know is basically Accepting some form of payment or gift or something from a foreign entity and then doing favors on behalf of that foreign entity once you're elected into your position of power. Treason. Yeah. Fun. So, Trump, you know, you could look at any number of countries, Saudi Arabia, China, uh, that he has bowed the knee to in one way or another. Russia is an example of one that gets thrown around a lot that actually really can't work in that discussion because if you look at Trump's policies towards Russia, They're far more hawkish than people give him credit for, far more aggressive than he even is towards China, I think a lot of people would argue, and everything that's going on with Ukraine and Russia right now. So that's another thing that they could have done. There's a litany of things that the Democrats could have done to block ACB from being appointed, and they didn't. And from my understanding, according to Politico, who was reporting on this, they said that Senior Democrats did not want to ruffle the feathers of anyone who might be offended by Democrats pushing up back against a well-accomplished woman who would be nominated to the Supreme Court. They thought that that could potentially lose them voters and decided to prioritize that over, again, a lifelong Supreme Court justice.
0: So I'm not entirely sure what the political parameters are for pushing through a nominee like this. But is
1: Trump able just to do this then before? This is unprecedented. There have been many Supreme Court justices that have been nominated and appointed within an election year. But as we all know, Anything can happen. Republicans set the precedent during Obama's last year in office and said, we're not going to do that anymore. Famously with Merrick Garland. They said, we're not going to appoint in an election year. Mitch McConnell was very stern about that. They set a precedent. And now... Many of those same actors who said that they would never do that. They would rather let the people of the United States decide the next president and have them decide who is going to appoint the next Supreme Court justice. A lot of those same actors, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, they're all now, of course, saying that "Eh, it's nothing wrong with appointing a Supreme Court justice in an election year. Let's get ACB in there. So uh, lots of hypocrisy there.
0: Yeah. Makes you
1: think about term limits sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Or packing the court. Yeah. I mean, Trump has his band and this is going to have a very negative connotation, the word cronies, but he does have his team of people that he has cultivated throughout his years in public life that he placed in key spots within his administration and then the moment that they turned on him they're gone. It's very simple for Trump. Like if you're not on team Trump, you're gone. So anyone that was in the Obama administration that did not like Trump, which was virtually all of them, Uh, they were gone. And it sounds crazy because we live in such a partisan world right now, but that's kind of uncommon. Usually there are figureheads from the previous administration that are kept as you move over into the new administration, obviously not in the most powerful positions, but you usually keep some people within the administration as you cross over. Trump, of course, did not do that. So he differentiates himself there. Because of Actions like that.
2: Is the Trump administration, in your opinion, one of the most, if not the most, fear-based administration within the last hundred years?
1: I think George Bush definitely rivals him. Junior? Yeah, yeah. I'll go out on a limb any day and argue that George Bush, Dick Cheney, they were the worst administration of all time, right? Like far worse than Trump. And I think... All you have to do is look at foreign policy and the amount of wars and interventions and coups that the Bush administration started and compare that to Trump. Sure, Trump exacerbated a lot of those. He increased intervention. He increased drone strikes, as did Obama in many cases. Uh But Bush started all of that. That was a new era of foreign policy that Bush even differentiated himself on from the previous administration of his father. Right. If you've seen the film, what was it the Dick Cheney film? Vice? Vice, uh, Vice? yeah. With, yeah, with Christian Bale. Yeah. yeah. A lot of that was from Dick Cheney. It wasn't even George Bush because as yeah. we all know he's a dumbass. But <laughs> it was the Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney administration. is like pence but worse in a lot of ways. I'd probably argue that they are a more fear-based administration. They were a more fear-based administration because all of the endless wars that we've gotten ourselves involved in that are predominantly for-profit we're started on this fear after 9-11, right, that we need to go in and get the bad guys. Even though we never went into Saudi Arabia and 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 happened to come from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia happens to fund all of the groups, the non-state terrorist jihadists, Sunni fundamentalist actors like al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, al-Shabaab. Taliban to a certain extent, all of these groups that are so bad and we all hate. We never went after any of them. And now Trump gives them all via Saudi Arabia, multi-billion dollar weapons deals. So it's a crazy world we're living in.
0: Word rhymes with coil. (laughs) It's oil.
1: (laughs) True. Is there any hope Jackson in the world? Is there any hope? I think there's definitely hope or else like, I think there wouldn't be so many people that are actively trying to change things. Mm-hmm. I think that goes without saying, but as far as mainstream political parties go, is there hope we have yet to see? I I don't know. Do you think we could ever see like a third party? Cause no. that's one of the, <laughs> yeah stop you there. Not here. Why? (laughs) Why? It is crazy because in so many other nations across the world, they have like six political parties or seven political parties. The elections just down in Bolivia just wrapped up. They had five or six presidential mainstream candidates, you know, and they all got above like 2% or 3% of the vote, which would be unheard of here. You're lucky if you get 1% of the vote in America as a mainstream party. The reason is kind of the same reason that there's no truly prominent independent media voices. There's no, there's a bipartisan consensus to stop the Green Party or the Libertarians or the whatever other party from gaining a lot of power, because at the end of the day, it's diluting the power of one of the two major parties.
2: What you're saying sort of is that the mainstream media and media is deeply intertwined with the politics in our country.
1: Yeah, I'd say that. And the main political parties are also have a vested interest in making sure that no one dilutes their power. Think about it this way. Like if you have Republicans and Democrats working together on an issue then whatever issue they're working together on is going to be achieved. They're going to have success. And if that issue is stopping a third party from gaining power or leverage or notoriety or support, then they're going to have success in doing that. There will be blood though, right? Like, <laughs> there will
2: be compromise
1: at least. There, uh, Probably,
0: right? Well, as long as the compromise is in service of maintaining both of their... Yeah. Power structures. Yeah. That's where their common ground is, is both parties want want to remain power. They both want power. And they're fine trading off presidential elections as long as they're still the top dogs. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Bernie had to run as a Democrat, even though it's definitely not. They're a lot farther left than standard Democrats, which are a lot farther left than what they would be in any other country. Does someone like Bernie want
2: power? I mean, he might.
1: I don't know. Do
2: you see him as somebody who's like, I want this position?
1: He's a thousand years old. He's got enough money to live the rest of his life and like have enough money for his kids and grandchildren, you know. He is a millionaire. He's been doing this for his whole life. His whole life. He has no reason other than to advance the issues that he cares about to get in that office of the presidency into the white house so yeah i've I've thought about that a lot actually and it's kind of funny because i do not think that he wanted to run for president he is far too old to be like carrying himself around the united states would probably rather be sitting in vermont on like some grassy field and playing baseball but he was out there pursuing these policies, not because he's going to have more checks from Goldman Sachs, not because he's going to be a fan of Citibank or Chase or Wells Fargo, but because he truly cares about the issues that he's trying to advance.
0: He's
2: in Batman terms, he's the hero we deserve. (laughs) Yeah. But not the one we need right now.
0: Yeah. Well, also the one we need right now, but not the one that will get elected apparently. (laughs) Thanks to the democratic establishment. Yes. I was going to ask Jackson this because he's even younger than us. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about The younger generations, you know, Y and Z or whatnot. And historically, the demographic, which has had the lowest voter turnout, and not often for your reason of the moral sense of, but mostly because of like an apathy or a desire to be apolitical because it is exhausting being political. And I was wondering if you could maybe just speak for a moment on how you can galvanize a population that will become the next generation and get them invested in caring about their future. And if you think that's even a thing that is a problem right now, how to get them interested in politics. Because even for most of my life, it wasn't until someone like Donald Trump came to power that they got me considering interest in politics.
1: Helping each person recognize that in some way or another, they're living in a crisis scenario. And that's like a very stressful way to look at life right now. But if say it was Trump for you, if Trump was the thing that motivated you to get out and vote or get out and participate in politics to a certain extent then that's your crisis that you care about that's motivating you for me it was like the climate crisis the environmental crisis that we're currently witnessing for someone who might be struggling to pay off student loan debt maybe it's the student loan debt crisis for someone whose mom is going through cancer treatment and they're racking up medical bills in the tens of thousands of dollars maybe it's the healthcare crisis that we're living in in america right now there's so many things that plague our everyday lives rent for example through this pandemic we by far it's crazy to me that we are the only country that is not doing not only halt on evictions not only a halt on rent but also forgiving rent that's something that we're not doing here right now and we've also certain states have started reopening eviction courts there's so many things your everyday life is inherently political whether you think it is or you think it isn't and helping people recognize that i think is the biggest thing that we can all do to help each other get more involved but it's going to look different for each person depending on your upbringing depending on your class your race your gender all those things privilege and family
2: of origin Yeah. When you said uh, that haven't been forgiving debt, I immediately was like, capitalism. That's because of capitalism. Yeah. We're not forgiving rent and all that jazz.
0: Do you have a way that you find is best to stay informed? Like we talked about living in the age of misinformation. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. That was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. There's so much misinformation
0: and then the inundation of mainstream media. And that's part of the problem of yeah. becoming
2: exhausted. Yeah. And a lot of people get into their own bubbles. Their, mm. What are they called? The uh, echo chamber echo chambers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Listen to my echo chamber. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously though, independent <laughs> media is the best thing in the world, in my opinion. And obviously with any human run organization or structure, you're going to have inherent flaws You have flaws in mainstream media, as we all know. But if you have a media, if you have a news source that is not reliant upon ads and sponsorship fees from major corporations, then you're going to get a much more accurate portrayal of the world of everyday events than the media outlet who does rely on those things. If you watch CNN, you might care about climate change. You might care about the future of our planet. And you might rely on people like Chris Cuomo or Don Lemon, who are both correspondents there, to give you an accurate portrayal of what's happening right now in the world surrounding the climate crisis. And then as soon as their segment ends, you see ads from ExxonMobil. You see ads from Chevron. You see ads from like all of these fossil fuel companies. And you're like, what is going on? You yeah. know? So if you prioritize your media, whichever way you like it, if you're like more of moderate, if you are a far leftist, whatever, from independent sources, you're going to have a better understanding of the world we're living in. One thing I will say is there are many people who portray themselves as independent outlets or independent commentators. Like Mm -hmm. Ben Shapiro is a very popular one, Steven Crowder, Charlie Kirk. But if you look at where their funding comes from, they're funded by organizations like PragerU, which are products of think tanks that were born out of Washington, D.C. and funded by millionaires and billionaires across this country. So be careful of where you look for your independent media also and who's funding them. Mm -hmm. If they're getting support from like small dollar donors like yourselves, then that's probably a pretty honest source.
0: Your mon pa journalists. Yeah. Look to the funding. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah. How do
2: you track that? How do you find independent commentators?
1: It's different for everyone. Everyone's obviously going to have their bias, you know, and their own agenda. Like I have my own agenda on my show. Everyone has that. You guys even have your own agenda, even though it's just like, a you, you know, me out. <laughs> It's, it's a pop culture podcast, know you know. It's <laughs> yeah. like you guys have your own thoughts and ideas and opinions. With the bigger guys like Ben Shapiro, Steven Crowder, Charlie Kirk, there is well documented Oh, it's easy to find the money journalism right? into like yeah, who yeah. funds them and who helped start them who pays for their trips across the country when they're going to visit college campuses. For politicians, you can look at, there's a website called Open Secrets, where you can literally see by the dollar who is donating to the politicians that represent you. You can look up Mm. any politician you want, even Mike Levin, who represents us, only at the federal level, I'll say. And it'll give you down to the dollar, excluding dark money, which are super PACs, of who are funding these people. So it kind of differs per profession obviously but I'd say it's well worth the effort to look into uh, who's funding the people you're listening to
0: that way you don't end up voting against your own self interests. yeah like what happens so often in this country
2: final question Just coming back to the whole theme of political ideology, one of the biggest misconceptions but also one of the things that keeps people in resistance to just politics in general is that it feels like this game of manipulation and rhetoric as we talked about before and saying the right things and people just arguing all the time and they're so tired of hearing all the arguing and so forth. Is there anything that you could say to counter that as someone who you really have your ear to the ground and also have been working alongside these people? Is it a game? Is it all just saying the right things at the right time to persuade the right groups and manipulation? Or are there actual concrete reasons we should be listening to these politicians in our lives?
1: I think if you're looking at the actual politicians, the actual candidates, the actual activists who do it for a job, the actual organizers, excluding the everyday person who just talks about politics, if you exclude everyone um, except for those people, it is, it's a job, it's a game, it's a game of like strategy, you know, and hopefully the ends that you're working toward are for truly honest values. Hopefully you're working towards helping the most people. Bring it back to the beginning of the podcast when you said like caring about the most human life across this globe and trying to uplift the most amount of people rather than piling the most money that you can into your own pockets. But it is a game. It's a strategy. It's a strategy for people who have honest intentions and it's a game and strategy for people who have terrible intentions. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. There's books written on how the activists during the civil rights movement like Martin Luther King, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Malcolm X, like how they would pursue activism and how they succeeded in pursuing a lot of the things that they were fighting for. And a lot of people on the left read those books, look at the strategy, look at how they guided their campaigns and initiatives, and try and apply that to what they're doing today. So much so down to the point that When we were talking about earlier, the Sunrise Movement, when I was in D.C., protesting that, we all knew that we were going to get arrested. There was 134 of us, if I'm not mistaken, that were arrested. Each one of us had $50 cash in our pockets. We were all told before that protest took place, the night before when we were about to go to bed in this massive church in D.C., that if you sit out and participate in this protest, the police are going to give you three opportunities to stand up and leave. All but 136 of you are going to do just that. You're going to stand up and leave. The other people who remain there are going to get arrested. You're going to get taken down to a lot in downtown D.C. You're going to post and forfeit your $50, and then you're going to be scot-free. So it is a game. It's a strategy. It's all about how you present yourself to the rest of the people who are listening, and hopefully you influence them in the right direction and even better, inspire them to join you in that movement.
2: When you are commentating or, or just in any issue that you are inspired to take upon for yourself, do you feel like you're being genuine to yourself or do you feel like you're participating in that
1: game? It's both. It's okay. both. It's good.
2: And is that fun for you? Do you get energized?
1: Yeah. By that? Okay. I think it's the only way I can And so many people do what we do, because Hmm. if you're not treating it as, I wouldn't say a game, game makes it sound like it's not important, you know, but like, well, to me, it's like,
2: it's, you're weighing something yeah, because you think about what do I want to do as a career or what do I want to do in my life that makes some sort of impact on the world or whatever it may be. And you weigh the outcome of, okay. Can I do this and still have a family or can I do this and still be true to myself or whatever it may
1: be? I'll say one thing surrounding just that. Uh The most important thing out of all of this as being a political commentator, a politician and activist is you can never sacrifice your core values. That's something that pisses me off and the average American off beyond belief. And I think we can all see through it. Because when you have someone who's on the left who says, sure, like Joe Biden, for example. Joe Biden says, I want to work with Republicans. I want to unite this country. Great. That sounds awesome. I love it. Let's all unite and sing, you know, songs together and dance around. a Kumbaya. Yeah, do that. But (laughs) at the end of the day, if Joe Biden is only working with Republicans by sacrificing his core values, then what good is that? So... It's about bringing people across the fold or into your fold, I guess, and encouraging as many people as possible to agree on your values. And um, obviously, you're going to put the strongest argument forward. You're not going to point out your own weaknesses. But uh, I think that's what it's all about. And you can do that in a way that doesn't sacrifice the things that you care about most.
2: Like you do have to sort of speak the right rhetoric and say the right things or be true to your values to make any kind of impact or have any kind of effect on anyone. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, hopefully you're being honest in doing so. Hopefully it's not like a gross misrepresentation of, of what you're trying to do. But take the start of Bernie Sanders's presidential campaign, for example. At the start of his campaign, he went out in this brief story, but he said, I support the right of everyone to vote even if you're in jail, even if you're a murderer or a rapist, I support your right to vote. I think we should have universal voting. I think everyone should be able to vote. And that is not a popular position. Yeah, (laughs) A lot of people freaked out, but Bernie's so principled that he felt very comfortable saying that. Mm -hmm. People freaked out. The mainstream media freaked out. A lot of people on the left and the right freaked out. And you never heard Bernie talk about that ever again throughout his whole campaign, even (laughs) though he does believe that. Right. So that's kind of what I mean when I say you don't Actively point out your own weaknesses, even if you don't see it as a weakness, you know, it's like you have to be working to affect the most positive change possible. And if that means staying silent about certain things that aren't as popular, then maybe you do that abolishing ice defunding the police. Those positions do not pull well at all nationally, especially in swing states, especially in Republican states, obviously. So those are things you're not going to hear espouse from any progressive politician, even if they believe in those things.
2: Does it leave room for change? I mean, say your political career is the entirety of your life, like you were saying Sanders as was. So but say he starts off extremely right wing and then one day is like, oh, my gosh, climate change is real earth isn't flat and I need to become more on the left. But people later in your career hold you to that stuff you said when you were younger. Does it leave room for change as far as sticking true to your core values and beliefs? Can you switch
1: sides as a politician? It depends person by person. I would say yes, because I've seen it firsthand. In no way do I have like a huge viewership on my show, but I've had countless people reach out to me, many of whom I went to high school with, who are legitimate white supremacists neo-nazis the whole stigma that you hear about these were those kids that i went to high school with and after months of either debating in a colloquial sense through dm on instagram or shooting them a video that i think they might like something like that a lot of these kids reached out to me and said you know what i was an idiot or you know what i had the wrong idea and you have brought me into your fold I will also add without sacrificing my positions, you know, like these are things that I care about. I'm willing to put out publicly on a video and I'm like, that's awesome. That's literally the coolest thing I've ever seen and I totally support you and thank you so much for changing your views and being able to recognize that. I've had things that I disagree on that I've said like three months ago. So I think it's totally possible for that to happen. And I applaud people who do it. And that's why we see so often people change their tune as a politician.
2: They sing one song and then, like you said, three months later might sing something different.
1: And hopefully it's for the right reasons.
2: Well, it sounds like you are definitely making an impact and influence on the world, which is awesome. How can people contact you or stay in touch with you?
1: So my YouTube show is The Dive with Jackson Hinkle. And all of my social medias are at Jackson Hinkle and then Hinkle with two L's. Uh, that's Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, and then you find me on Facebook because I do post on Facebook. I, nice. I'm always on there. MySpace or no? No, MySpace. Do you actually <laughs> broadcast on Twitch? I do right now, and I'm going to be doing it almost entirely on Twitch that's very awesome. soon when I finish my computer. That's yeah. where the money is. <laughs> that's where the money is. And that's where the, also, as we pointed out in the beginning when we were talking, that's where the young viewership really is. Yeah. That's where it really is. And it's growing.
0: Very true.
2: have any preference if I included music in this podcast? I love music. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of music would you want to include? Listen to the capitalism one we did uh, the Dark Knight trilogy yeah. score, which is
1: pretty, pretty heavy. Insane. <laughs> that was sick, actually, though. Like, it really worked.
2: I wanted to do Inception, but my brother was like, you might come up as if you're trying to plant ideas in people's minds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what about? I could do Inception here. Favorite music in a movie Sure. is the soundtrack from Interstellar, we could do Interstellar music. Interstellar, I'm obsessed with. Uh, that's like my favorite. That's my favorite. Yeah, no, that would actually work. work.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 I think Let's just it. do it. <laughs> <laughs>